Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from Raven Rock State Park in North Carolina. I came up to Central North Carolina to do a series of talks at a couple of churches, had a great reception, made a lot, met a lot of wonderful people. I really love uh, being on the road again now that coronavirus has gone away. CMI has released me to do touring. I'm having a wonderful time. But this is fall. I'm actually at the fall line. It's a very interesting geological feature all across the eastern seaboard of the United States, all around the Gulf of Mexico. There's a place where the highland meets the floodplain. It's called the fall line. It's often associated with fossils like shark teeth and sandbars. It apparently was the old shoreline. So right after the flood, before the ice age started, the water was 100 to 80 feet higher than it is today. And we have a shoreline. It's a fascinating place. But I didn't come here to talk to you about geology or, or state parks. I want to talk about the fall and my favorite fruit, apples. Very often on the way home from work, I'll eat an apple at you know, 5 o'clock and I've got an hour or so to dinner. It's like the perfect tide me over. Unlike a banana, which caused cause my blood sugar to crash, an apple just keeps me going. And it's perfect. It stays crisp. As long as you don't bruise it, it, it stays flavorful. Apples are wonderful. But the apples we eat today are completely unlike apples of olden days. They're totally not the same thing as the apples they would have eaten in ancient times in the Middle East or something like that. And apples give us a wonderful thing to talk about when we're discussing how species change. Now, you might recall my four-part series here on biblical genetics, How Species Change, and my conclusion that God designed species to adapt and change over time. And he built into them on purpose. He engineered things to change over time. You also might be familiar with my three-part article series on creation.com of the same title, Species Are Designed to Change Parts 1, 2, and 3. There'll be links for all this in the show notes if you haven't seen them yet. But basically, the idea that God is an intelligent engineer on purpose made things to change. And apples are an excellent example because they have radically changed. And apples bring up an issue, and the issue is how much change can the creationists accept before we start talking like an evolutionist? That's a good question. And we have to be really careful because apples are in uh, the rosaceae family. That includes pears. And if you've ever cut open a pear, they look a lot like an apple on the inside. It also includes strawberries that aren't at all like apples or pears. It also includes roses. So where in this family is the break between the created kinds and how much change we're allowed to see in the creation record? That's a, that's a good question. But let's talk about something very important. God created hierarchically. Clearly, he created hierarchically. I mean, just look at humans and chimpanzees. We're more similar to chimpanzees than we are to aardvarks or rutabagas. So clearly, the creation order is hierarchy. I don't believe that humans and chimpanzees are the same created kind. They're different, and yet we're more similar to them than other things. The same with birds. Birds classify with reptiles. They classify with a subgroup of reptiles, which is why the evolutionists say that birds are dinosaurs. Well, I don't believe that, but they are more similar to a subgroup of dinosaurs than to anything else. I have no problem with that. It's just classification. So somehow, in the Rosaceae family, we have pears and apples, which may be the same created kind, maybe not. Then we have strawberries and roses and all bunch of other different species, which I don't think are, are one creation. But plants are different than animals, specifically land animals, because plants don't have to be on the ark. 
plants would survive the flood. A lot of plant species can survive long times being submerged and a long time floating in salt water. And interesting, Charles Darwin is the one who did those experiments for us. He showed that a lot of seeds can float for up to a year in salt water and then be planted and grow just fine afterwards. Thank you, Mr. Darwin, for telling us that. That's a great uh, answer to the flood problem of how plants survive the flood. But apples could easily have been brought on Noah's Ark also. So apples could be a combination of creative diversity, flood survivability, and on the ark transport where the seeds were then planted afterwards and then grew up in the Middle East starting there and spreading outwards. And interestingly, modern apples started in the Middle East. They started in the mountains north of Iraq, which is pretty close to where we think the ark landed. And a lot of other domesticated uh, plants that we used for the, uh, the, at least the Western agricultural innovation, uh, barley, wheat, vetch, uh, some salad greens, apples, they all came from the mountains north of Iraq. Malus domestica, the apple, is amazing. There are about 10,000 different varieties of apples that we grow. Apples, after they sequence the apple genome, they realize that apples have extreme heterozygosity. There's more diversity within one single apple than probably all of humans put together. There are about three variations per 1,000 letters in the apple genome. That is amazing. Therefore, anytime you have an apple that reproduces, there's so much shuffling of genes, you cannot get the parent type from a seed. So apples almost always breed toward crab apples. You can't plant a, a pink lady take seeds out of a pink lady apple and grow pink ladies. It doesn't work like that. The fruit comes from the parent tree. So the fruit is reflected by the tree, but the seeds are a product of sexual recombination and you get a lot of shuffling of a lot of genes and therefore they don't breed true to type. There's a huge amount of diversity there. And something else, when they finally sequenced the genome of the apple, in fact, what they did is they looked at the golden delicious apple on purpose because a golden delicious is uh, part of the genomic background of a lot of modern apples that we use in, in, that you buy at the grocery store. So the Pink Lady, the uh, Gala Apple, the Rome Apple, a lot of those have Golden Delicious in their genetic background. So that's why they targeted that. And what they found was about 60% of the genome is composed of transposable elements. Those are jumping genes. Those are sections of DNA that can form a loop and pop out of the genome and then stick somewhere else. And because of all that action of all the transposable elements over time, apple domestication has been crazy. Apples started in the Middle East and they were transported along the Silk Road east and west. And we could trace our genetics back to a Middle Eastern source population. But modern apples have a lot less acid than old apples. I mean, crab apples, they, they turn your mouth dry because of all the malic acid in them, and they're hard to eat. You can eat them, but they're awfully tart, and they're really good for making apple cider and maybe pies, but not really good for picking off the tree and chomping on. Modern uh, varieties have, oh, one-third or less the amount of acids as wild varieties, and there are a lot of wild varieties. There are a lot of species of apples and apple-like trees, but apples that we have today there was a, um, a mutation that happened, a microRNA that we, we now know a microRNA appeared at one specific location in the apple and that caused the fruit to grow larger. And all of a sudden we had this large fruited apple tree and then another mutation happened later on. So we had another enlargement of the apple and then other people started selecting ones for less acid content and they started selecting ones that didn't bruise, ones that would transport well. And so the apples that we have in our grocery stores 
They all tend to be about the same size. They all transport well, and they're all good for the modern agricultural economy, but they do not reflect the genetic diversity we see in the wild or even on old farms. I want to call your attention to an article that appeared in our Journal of Creation about a year or so ago. It's now available on creation.com. It's by my colleague, Pierre Turborg. He has written some amazing things over the years. And if you don't subscribe to the Journal of Creation, you're missing out because I have been absolutely amazed by several authors, him specifically. And he wrote an article on something called hemizygosity. All right, let's talk about zygosity. To be homozygous means you have two copies of the same gene. To be heterozygous means you have different copies of the same gene. I'm heterozygous for eye color because I have three children who have blue eyes and one child who has brown eyes. Clearly, I carry the blue eye gene. I'm heterozygous. To be hemizygous means you only have one copy of the gene at all. It's like a, a hemisphere is a half a sphere. Well, to be hemizygous means you only have half the DNA. You are hemizygous in a lot of locations. There's probably a couple million places in your genome where you have an insertion in your dad and a deletion in mom, and so you have more DNA that you got from your dad that got from mom, or vice versa. You have a lot of places where you're missing DNA. Charles Darwin studied um, what we now call hemizygosity in primroses. Primroses have a thing called heterostyly. That's hetero means different. Styly is the plant parts. There are primroses that have long pistils and short stamens, and short pistils and long stamens. In the same plant species, you had different types of flowers. And Darwin is researching this and writing some really interesting things. But today, we now know what causes this. And what is causes this is hemizygosity. Some primroses have a long piece of DNA with multiple genes in it, and some don't. And if you have that gene, you produce one flower type, that set of genes, you produce one flower type. And if you don't have that gene, you produce the other flower type. Now, hemizygosity is part of God's creation. It's another mechanism that I forgot to talk about in my other series, another mechanism for producing change over time, big change over time, engineered change over time. And so all the evolutionary speculations about change over time almost all of that fits very comfortably into the creationist world. Check out that article you can find on creation.com. There'll be a link in the show notes also. Before I go, I just want to give a big shout out to my supporters. Ken and Connie, you're at the top of the list. But over on patreon.com, my long-term supporters, Dave H., M. Matsky, and Rob S. at my top level. Middle level, Daniel P., James R., Jeff V. D., Mark K., and Mike from Australia. Thank you guys so much. Lower level at Patreon, Chris R., Jonathan P., and Ted H. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, just look in the show notes or go to patreon.com and look for biblical genetics. It'll come right up. Over on buymeacoffee.com, my people that just throw in a couple dollars into my hat, I really appreciate it. But this month, I had Stephanie S. once again, Brandon B., Louis P., George B., and an anonymous donor or two. Thank you so much. There'll be more coming up on biblical genetics. I'm going to spend a little more time hiking in this beautiful area. I've got a river to explore. I have some rapids. I have some Native American archaeology to examine. I'm enjoying my first cold morning of the fall here in 2021, enjoying God's creation. I'm loving life. I'm loving being outside. I hope you enjoy God's creation as much as I do. Have an awesome time. I will see you soon.